Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Dr. Carter Malkasian, one of the world's leading scholar practitioners on the Afghanistan war. He's written several really interesting books, one of which in 2013 was War Comes to Garmser. Most recently, he's published as of this year, The American War in Afghanistan in, that just came out in 2021. So he's really quite a thoughtful and interesting person. Dr. Malkasian was a civilian advisor in Afghanistan and Iraq, served as the senior advisor to General Joseph Dunford. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs from 2015 to 2019. He recently published a book, The American War, as I said, The American War of Afghanistan, which covers the political, cultural, and strategic aspects of the Afghanistan War, follows the 20-year timeline of the Afghanistan War while diving into the complicated web of actors and stakeholders in Afghanistan, including the U.S. government, the Taliban, U.S.-backed Afghanistan government, Pakistan, and more. Really a sobering chronicle of the Afghan conflict, and I highly recommend this book to anyone wants to gain a deeper understanding of our military engagement in Afghanistan. So thanks for joining us today, Dr. Malkazian. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate the opportunity. Why, first, would you tell me, how did you get into this business? Like, how did you end up going to either Afghanistan or Iraq when you when, when you were first given the opportunity? What do you have a PhD in, and did you kind of stumble into this? So I, I have a doctorate in history. I, I completed my doctorate in uh, 2000. And I was look, looking for a job after that um, and doing visiting, teaching various places. And then uh, 9-11 hit and I had an opportunity to work at a think tank called the Center for Naval Analyses, CNA. And it, that sounded like interesting work. It was a good job for me to get at the time. And one of the great things that CNA does is it puts its people out in the field, has analysts go and work with car- carrier battle groups afloat at sea at places like the Top Gun School in Fallon, uh, um, Nevada, and puts them with Marines places. So I was able to go out with the Marines to Iraq, and I did that three times. Ambar province, saw the insurgency there, saw what was going on there, tried to give the best advice I could. Worked at Iraq stuff until 2006 or so, and then I kind of decided I wanted to become more involved, and that got me to Afghanistan. And eventually I decided I'd want to stop analyzing and studying the conflicts and actually kind of be more of an involved on the ground, more of an actor on the ground. And so that, that got me to join the State Department. And that's how I was two years in Garms here. So that's kind of the, the story of how I ended up spending so much time in these places. And of course, I spent more time in Afghanistan after that. And you're fluent in Pashto. Yes, I, I can speak Pashto. When I was in Iraq, I kind of tried to learn Arabic and I didn't do a very good job at it. I spent too much time, you know, reading other things, reading too much intel, reading other reports that were coming out. So I never really picked up Arabic. But what I noticed there was how the Marines who spoke Arabic, how they really had a better connection with the people, how they really understood what was going on. And so then when I went to Afghanistan, I said, I have to do a better job knowing the language. I have to really work hard to make sure that I can understand it. So before I went, 
I went and got a uh, I, I went and got a, a tutor, someone who taught at the Foreign uh, Services Institute, who taught Pashtu there. And I said to him, I don't want to learn the pronunciation perfectly. Just teach me all the grammar. Teach me past tense, future tense, everything. I want to know all the grammar I can. So I did that for two months. Then I went to Afghanistan. And when I was there, I spent as much time with interpreters as I could. I spent time every morning studying Pashtu, speaking Pashtu to everyone I could, even if it made it, even if I was making horrible mistakes. And I was in Garmsir for two years. So after about nine months, my Pashtu was a lot better and I could do a lot more on my own. And I just kept on studying it ever since. Okay. And so if, how many people in the American government, when you were there at the time, spoke Pashtu? Intelligence, military, diplomat, AID... You know, I never took an exact count, but there were always a few other people than me who could speak Pashtu, always other few other Americans and some Brits who could do so. So I don't want to claim myself to be the only one. And let me tell you a story. Before even before I learned Pashtu, when I was in Afghanistan before Garmsir, I was in Kunar. I was in working on the provincial reconstruction team, and I was I was trying to learn Pashtu then, but it was it was before I'd really gotten a grip on it. And there was an American there who spoke Pashtu. She was a U.S. diplomat by the name of Allison Blosser, who had been to Peshawar and was now working in Kunar province where this provincial reconstruction team was located. And so she could speak Pashtu, and most of the locals knew that. So one day I was on a mission up in the northern part of the province. We went to a village. I was there with the military. Allison and other civilians weren't there. And I jumped out of the Humvee, and I went to talk to the villagers in this particular village. And the village elder, the old man, comes up to me, and there's a bunch of children and young men around him, you know, to talk to the Americans who are visiting. And he comes up to me and he says, do you know Allison? And I, ah. and I said, of course I know Allison. She's fantastic. And he says, do you speak Pashtu? I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't. And he replies, this is all through an interpreter, of course. He replies, Allison speaks Pashtu and she is a woman. You are a man and you do not speak Pashtu. And the whole village laughed. The whole village just thought that was the most hilarious thing possible. But that is a sign of the respect that the whole community in this province gave to an American who could speak Pashtu. Whether or not that person was a man or a woman, that's how much respect Pashtu could buy. And this is a village out there in the north of the province, not like in the middle of the provincial center or something. So that wow. speaks to the power of, of learning the language. So, so I 100% agree with that. I'm going to guess, though, let's just for argument's sake, at any time you were serving, how many people in the U.S. government, you know, USG employee, full-time employee spoke Pashtu at any one time operating Afghanistan? 10, 20, 30? Yeah, those are probably reasonable guesses. We also want to mention that there's, you know, so I speak Pashtu. There's the other language of Afghanistan, which is Dari. Yeah. And many more Americans speak Dari. Because Dari it's, is, like, it's like Farsi. Exactly. Farsi is taught in just about every U.S. university. Pashtu is only taught in a handful. Wait, how many? Do you know of a school in the United States that speaks Pashto today? And who? Which so? Which one? Uh, so Indiana University is one that that still teaches Pashto. I'm not sure if Boston College does. I think there's a few others there. Foreign Service Institute does. DLI Defense Language Institute teaches it. So there are some some places like that. But you're right. Pashto isn't isn't taught very widely. Okay, I'm Googling it as we talk. Where can I learn Pashto in the U.S. University? Stanford, Santa Barbara, Pennsylvania, Georgia. This is, you know, if you believe Google, right? Well, so that's a, that's a decent list. Yeah, okay. Georgia, Wisconsin, Madison, Pennsylvania, Santa Barbara. Maybe this is dated. Indiana, Five College Consortium, Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey, and the Middle East yep. Institute. That's good. 
Could you just tell tell the story of War Comes to Garmser? Because I think it's like, I think it sort of sets the stage for the bigger conversation. So you wrote that book in 28 years ago. And there's a really interesting photo of you, I think, in the book. Did you dress like that every day when you went to work? No, that I only, in fact, that that photo, I only dressed that on the last evening I was there. The police chief, Omar John, had had purchased those for me as a departing gift. And the Afghans all wanted to see me dress in it, you know. So I did that, and and they are very beautiful clothes, and they're very cool in the in the heat of Afghanistan. But on a day to day basis, I was looking like just about any other American civilian there. So that that's the that's the story there. Okay, so why did you write that book, and then talk about some of the work you've done since? Because what I wanted to have you come on this podcast was to say. We have we have the longest war. You wrote a history of the longest war. We just have had a change happen. I've got a lot of very strong emotions about it. I would have preferred that we kept a, resili- a residual force. I'd have preferred that we stayed. I would argue there have been significant development gains. I was at AID for five years. I was at the World Bank for four years, and I've been at CSIS for 11. If you look at girls' education or health metrics or 25 million cell phones or the, the freest media market in, in South Asia, uh, sort of women's participation in the workforce, women in society, not perfect. And some of the things you talk about in War Comes to Garms are some of the disruptions in the traditional society and some of sort of our, what I describe as tone deafness. So I, it's hard to capture this in like a 20 minute conversation, but you ought to go, everyone ought to go out and buy all of Carter Malkazian's books. You ought to read War Comes to Garmser, his most recent book about the uh, the American the American War in Afghanistan that he just published. So go out and read all his books. This is a very smart, thoughtful person. That's why I have him on. You know, I, I wanted to come on and be like, help me understand what the hell just happened, Carter, and why did it happen? So I spent two years in Garmser. And when I got there, I didn't have an idea of writing a book like that. Slowly, I learned more about the district. I learned more about what was happening there. And I was always very interested in why the Taliban were there and why we had had such problems in Afghanistan and and in Garmsir and in Helmand. So I was really attuned to those things. But like over time, I started to learn more about the district's history, started to learn more about why there were problems there. And I started to discover that I had to go pretty far back in the history to really understand the problems that were happening. It wasn't just about that the Taliban were overthrown in 2001 and wanted to come back. It wasn't just about Pakistan being there. It wasn't just about that the government was corrupt and was abusive towards its people. Those things are true, but it wasn't just about that. It was about the longer history, how at first, how, how there had been Um, canals built through the district that brought water to places that didn't have water before. That allowed people to immigrate to the district, but those people who immigrated in often weren't welcome. And how that caused friction in the area, caused haves and have-nots to be present. How the Soviet invasion happened, and how the Soviet invasion empowered some people and disempowered other people. How after the Soviet invasion, there was a civil war, and then there's the Taliban arriving. The Taliban gave power to some new people, empowered more of the have-nots, pushed out more of the haves, let um, poppy production increase. It had already been there, but they increased it uh, to a much greater extent. And so even before 2001, there had been divisions in the district and differences that had existed there. And you have to understand the tribes, 
and the differences the tribes had in the district. You have to understand the religious institutions and the religious leaders and what their viewpoints were. You have to understand the long-term role of the government. Those are all things I saw happen in Garmsir. When I got to Garmsir, only a small part of the district was under U.S. and government control. Most of it was still under the Taliban. Over time, the U.S. Marines, in coordination and partnership with the Afghans, drove the Taliban out of just about all the districts. And the district is about 120 kilometers in length from the top of it to the bottom. And it's primarily farmland that runs along the Helmand River. So about um, anywhere between five to 10 kilometers on either side of the Helmand River, there's farmland. But that's the only part of the district where there's, there's farmland. The rest of it's all desert. But we slowly cleared all of that out, worked with a variety of Afghans um, to do that. And so I was there for two years, and at about the end of that two years, one day I was down in the far end of the district in Safar. I was there with the police chief, Omar John, who I mentioned before. I had gone down there with him in his, uh, in his pickup um, truck with his, other, with his other police in their pickup trucks, and there weren't any other Americans with me because that's the kind of tight partnership that we had formed with the, with, with the Afghans. So we were down there, and we were having a discussion with some of the local elders, and all of a sudden, Omar John gets a phone call. And he gets a smirk on his face. And he says, come on, we're going. We need to go right now. And I'm kind of in the middle of the discussion. It's like, wait, I got to finish the discussion. He's like, no, 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 we got to go. We, we leave. We drive about uh, 45 minutes northward towards a little, little bit further north in the district. And we get to a location. We discover that some of the police further north had captured two Taliban district governors. So these are two fairly high-level Taliban commanders. These Taliban commanders had been heading up to take over forces further up north in the province. And the police had captured them. These are the police that we had taken time forming. The Marines and myself had taken time forming, taken time training. And they had done this all on their own, without any assistance from us. That was a tremendous feeling of accomplishment, that something had been attained here. I drove back up north that day with Omar John along the main road that ran along the main canal through the district, bumping along and going through all the villages and all the places that I had seen over the past two years. And Afghan flags flying everywhere, driving by posts and, and Afghans waving at us who we knew. A sense that, that something had been accomplished there. Now that sense was you know, probably a little bit deceptive, but it is a little bit of the, the feeling that something had been done, a sense of some kind of optimism. And while I was driving back up through the district, we're driving by many schools, many schools that we could see to be open, that we knew students were going to. Why did we know students were going to it? Because Marines and other folks were checking on them day after day. How do we make sure students were there? Because we didn't just build a school the provincial reconstruction team made sure just that the provincial authorities were, had the supplies, the textbooks for students, had the teachers in place. And then with our own eyes, we saw day after day students coming to school. We saw the clinics constructed there. So we had seen change. Obviously, that change wasn't enough. What percentage of the people on the ground supported the Taliban? And that's kind of a funny word, right? What did they feel about the Taliban, if I could put it that way? There were polls done by the Provincial Reconstruction Team of Garmster and other places. And those polls found that the majority of the people supported the government and only a small minority supported the Taliban. And you can see similar polls, such as the Asia Foundation poll that comes out every year. Now, you have to be a little bit skeptical of those polls, right? How honestly are the Afghans answering? How are they saying what they think the pollster wants them to hear? Or are they saying what they really feel? 
are the polls getting to all the different Afghans? Was there a way to get at revealed preference, you know, from economics? There was probably some methodological things. If they said the wrong thing, they'd get marked down as a bad actor or something. So that's very interesting. Would you think, was there some way in your mind to kind of get a sort of a tacit sense of that? The things that we would look at to get a sense of how the people were feeling in Afghanistan were, were would they allow police to be in their, to be in their areas? Were they willing to have a school start in their areas? Because many places at first weren't willing to do that. Would they participate in elections? Would they, and that would be both for the, the president or for the district council or for the provincial council. How willing are people to be involved in, in that? How many people are coming to events with the government officials to talk to them? How willing are the mullahs to come talk to the government and start working with them because they traditionally have more affiliation with the Taliban? How many of the tribal leaders coming back to their villages Previously, they would try to live in other places where they felt it wasn't dangerous. How many of them are coming to live there now and feel safe? How many villages are reoccupied now? How many new bazaars are opening? Those are some of the, the more tactile things that one could see to get a sense of how support for the government was improving. Now, do we know what percentage of people really support the government? No, we probably don't really know what percentage exactly supported the government. Do we know what percentage truly supported the Taliban? That is also something that's very difficult to say. And I would suspect that throughout my time in Garmster and even after that, a decent percentage either supported the Taliban or were okay with them, weren't gonna stand up against them. So when you walked in the bazaars, whether you're with Marines, shopkeepers often looked at one, not meanly, not angrily, but not with a look of happiness, with a look of you're an outsider. Why is the outsider here? Sometimes walking in a bazaar, a policeman or someone who I know, knew would try to protect me, would try to get in between me and the shop owners and get in between me and the other members of the population. None of the population were doing anything very um, cruel or angry. It's not like they were throwing rocks or something. But there was a sense that the people don't really want Americans around. Now that came across most starkly in Garmsir at the time of a night raid that happened by U.S. Special Operations Forces and Afghan Special Operations Forces. They raided a home, and after they raided that home, a rumor came out that a Quran had been stabbed. Now we think that rumor was actually propaganda from the Taliban, but whether it was propaganda or not, within 48 hours of that rumor coming out, 500 people were marching on the district center. They did throw rocks at people. They did attack the police. They did smash into a school and effectively destroy it. So even while people may have been willing to work with the government and not want to lay IEDs against us, it didn't always take a lot to show that people weren't happy with the outsider being present. It's hard to guess, but what percentage of the population of Afghanistan is happy to see outside forces out of the country? That's a very hard thing to it's completely guess. unscientific. There's no statistical anything, but just as a, is it 60%, 70%? So why don't we look at some of the things the Asian Foundation has found over time? They found it fine in a place like Kandahar, a place like Zabal, range between different years, something like 20 to 40% of the population had some kind of sympathy for the Taliban. That was, those are the folks willing to put it on the table and say it to a pollster. That's correct. And those are often going to be more in urban areas than in far off rural areas where the Taliban would have some control. So I think we would then want to put a minimum on the number of people that are happy with the Taliban's return, somewhere between 20 to 40 percent. It could be a bit higher. So one of the things that we know happens in civil wars, and this is from political science literature, is that when 
a force takes over an area, when the insurgents take over an area, the government takes over an area, sympathy tends to trend in the direction of who is in control. And that's not a, it's a very intuitive thing. People are worried about how the government views them and how the people who have power view them. So they will tend to shift a little bit in that in that direction. I've just I would say the last four weeks have been sort of the hardest for me professionally that I've had in my tw- you know twenty plus year career in global development. I think this is horrific. This is just awful. And I can use lots of think tank words about it, but this has just been horrific to watch this and experience this. Could we have done something different, Carter? And if so, what could we have done differently? And I'm not talking about the end. I'm talking about in the first 10 or 15 years. Let's just say from 10, 2002 to 2015. So the first thing would be to include the Taliban more in the political process. There's a wide variety of occasions when the Taliban reached out to Karzai or the Afghan government wanting to have some kind of participation. Now, it's really unclear if these were individuals wanting to participate or the movement as a whole wanting to participate. But regardless, we said no. Secretary Rumsfeld said no. Later, Vice President Cheney said no. Eventually, all Taliban were put on a blacklist. That's about 2004. And the Bush administration told Karzai that there was to be no, no discussions. With because we thought we were going to win and they were the bad guys and we were angry. Is that right? It's basically right. And we thought we had one. We were overconfident. We thought the Taliban were largely defeated and there was no reason to, to worry about this. Where in, in retrospect, it would have been better to include them in the political process, give them a, a seat at the table, let them debate about the future of the Afghan government. Now, I don't want to, I mean, that's a clear mistake. Would it have solved everything? That I'm less sure of. It's not clear how many Taliban were really interested in doing that, how many were determined to fight. It's not clear Mullah Omar was fully behind this. And there were other Taliban who seemed quite bent on war, such as uh, Jalaluddin Haqqani or Mullah Dadullah Lang, both of which were fierce supporters of suicide bombing. So there, it, it's not clear how much, but could it have made a small difference? Could it have made the Taliban weaker? Yes. So it's something we we didn't do. Lots of people have also talked about the Afghan security forces, how we didn't put enough effort into them early on. And I think that's basically true. We didn't build a force that was large, nor did we build a force that was high quality. And that meant the Taliban didn't face a lot of immediate resistance when they really start their offenses in 2006. And it also meant that we had to become more involved in, in 2006. Again, I'm not sure that this would have enabled victory, but it would have enabled a course that was less costly for us. And so we can keep on walking this forward. There's other smaller stakes that were made. I'm sure you're very experienced with early on our projects and such used too many big corporations, didn't employ enough locals. We had problems with our, I guess, with our projects all the way through where there often wasn't enough quality assurance going on, which allows graft and corruption to continue at a higher degree. Often we built schools in the wrong places and it took a while for us to learn a lot of these these lessons. But I, even we, that shouldn't, I don't mean when I say that, I don't mean to say that those efforts didn't have a positive effect, merely that they were less efficient than they should have been. I mean, I think overall that the development efforts did have a positive effect in Afghanistan. If we want to keep on talking about mistakes that were made after 2006 or so, it becomes hard to see things that would have made a big difference. I should add, not going into Iraq probably would have made a big difference, but we should kind of leave that off because it's almost a separate, totally separate discussion. But after 2006, so the Taliban are strong. The Taliban are fighting in lots of different areas. Their message is getting across to the people as a resistance against occupation. 
we're conducting strikes in return, the strikes that we uh, that we conduct in return, they too feed resistance and anger because innocent civilians are, whether intentionally or unintentionally, killed from time to time. So it makes everything harder. So when you're talking about from 2006 on, you're really talking about what could we have done to manage the war better? What could we have done to have fewer costs? What could we have done to make the war more sustainable? What could we have done to have lost fewer lives? And one of those is, is the surge. We probably shouldn't have surged in 2009. We probably should have either kept the numbers that we had there or decreased them a little bit or increase them a very small amount, not increased by the uh, 54,000 or so that it was eventually increased by. And the reason for that is that we took a lot of casualties, we spent a lot of money during that time, and the results, all the benefits, the progress, and there was real progress, like I discussed in Garms here, but that progress all washed away. So we would have been better off not to have done that, to have stuck with a smaller number, dealt with the fact that there still would have been violence in Afghanistan, there wouldn't have been as many schools, and there wouldn't have been as many police or army possibly, but it would have been something we probably could have sustained better for the long term. So those are kind of three big ones. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll pause here. I need like an Irish coffee just listening to this. This is like, this is so tough. Carter, thanks for coming on. This is great. We'll probably chop this up into a couple part series because this is a lot. So I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 